0: This is here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we're joined now by phone. Uh, uh, James Gus Speth joins us. Uh, he, he is... Uh, where are you calling from?
1: Uh, hi, Doug. Uh, I'm in central Vermont.
0: Very nice. Very nice day. is it, You're waiting for the big storm, then?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's about <laughs> half through, I hope, uh, but we love it here that way. Um, it's the way it's supposed to be in Vermont in the winter.
0: Okay, well, I hope it... Uh, doesn't leave you too isolated <laughs> and out of touch. It sounds like it's going to be a heck of a storm tonight.
1: Yes, it will be.
0: Uh, you are the co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council. You were chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality during the Carter administration. You were founder of the World Resources Institute, an environmental think tank in Washington, dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and you have a Lifetime Achievement Award of the Environmental Law Institute. And I'm just scratching the surface there. I mean, you, you were a law clerk to uh, Justice Hugo Black, among other things, so you've got uh, you've got quite a resume, uh, Gus. Uh, but I want to talk. All those groups have done better after I left. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, uh, you're you're humble too. Uh, but one of the things that really caught our interest here and our attention was the fact that you have been arrested uh, for protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. Why? What happened?
1: Well, I I've I, I finally reached the end of my proverbial rope. Um, this is a great uh, carbon bomb, a uh, uh, climate change bomb out, out there in Alberta and uh, at the time when we ought to be moving away from deeper dependence on fossil fuels, something which uh, your state is in the middle of, uh, yes. uh, uh, we might talk about that, but um, you know, we ought to be moving out of fossil fuels. We ought to be reducing our fossil fuel consumption in a major way each year. Uh, and uh, in, instead, we're digging deeper, uh, going for more extreme energy, uh, hooking up to bigger carbon fossil fuel sources. And, and and when I say at the end of my proverbial rope, I mean, you know, I was Carter's uh, Council of Environmental Quality Chair in the late 1970s. And we put out three reports back then uh, calling for, action on climate change and calling for capping the buildup of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to prevent the uh, serious climate change. And of course that was over thirty years ago, and almost nothing has happened. so I said, well, what the dickens? I, I think it's time to take to the streets. Maybe we'll have some bigger impact that way. And now we did postpone the uh, administration's decision. Uh, I think I had a, we had a role in postponing that decision, put it that way. And there's now going to be another very big rally on uh, the Sunday before President's Day in Washington uh, on the climate issue, on the Keystone XL issue.
0: What were the circumstances, though, specifically surrounding your arrest? What happened?
1: Uh, We uh, engaged in what can only be described as a minor traffic violation, uh, which is known as failure to move on. We were uh, in front of the White House, a group of some some 60-some-odd of us, and we were asked to move on uh, by the park police, and we said no. And uh, so um, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Uh, It it ranged from a minor fine, which is it's like a $50 fine, failure to move on. But instead, we ended up for three days in the central cell block of the D.C. jail. And um, it was uh, quite an experience, but uh, it was worth it. Oh. And uh, I uh, perhaps we deserved it, but uh, anyhow, we were engaging in a minor act of, of civil disobedience, nonviolent.
0: So now you've got a rap sheet.
1: <laughs> I guess I do. I, I, they ended up not charging us with anything. Ah. Having kept us there three days, they opened the doors of, uh, took off our leg irons, uh, and um, and allowed us to depart uh, unscathed.
0: Do you oppose most pipeline projects, or is the is the Alberta tar sands a particularly difficult
1: issue for you oh it's the it 's the tar sands issue and and now there 's a plan to actually reroute a uh, or re-do, uh, reconfigure a pipeline that'll run across uh, northern Minnesota, nor, <laughs> northern uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and into uh, portland maine, uh, taking the try to get the uh, Bitumen, uh, this uh, uh, dangerous uh, form of uh, of oil that comes out of the you know tar sands, and to ship it out of, of Portland, Maine, uh, as an alternative or as a supplement to the Keystone XL pipeline. So I'm my concern. A lot of people are in this fight because they they are worried a lot about their uh, what happens when uh, when this pipeline uh, breaks, as 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 one did, and in, into the Yellowstone River, I think. Uh, uh, I think that was the river, uh, but anyhow, you can have accidents. Uh, you you can have scarring of the land uh, and other things. But my concern is climate change, and uh, and that is the sum and substance of, of why I'm in this fight.
0: Sure, and that uh, the Alberta tar sands are, are are considered to be somewhat dirty, if you will, as a source for oil. Is that the is that the yes. bottom line I mean, there?
1: It's it's not. Uh, yes, it's a. Um, as I said, you know, we, we, um, it, it's not only enormously destructive into the, you know, Alberta landscape. Uh, it's potentially dangerous in the areas that the pipeline will pass through. But the big thing, is, uh, one of our leading scientists, James Hansen, has said, is that, you know, if we hook up, uh, if we really exploit that resource, uh, you know, he said climate game over, uh, there's, there's a huge reservoir uh, of uh, fossil fuel there, and it's, it is, uh, you know, it, it produces less energy uh, than, you know, per uh, F, uh, level of effort than, uh, than oil does, and a lot less uh, than natural gas does. Um, it's a dangerous source, and we ought to be moving away from it. But what we're doing is going into extreme energy in a lot of places. I mean, Shell is trying to drill in the, the uh, Arctic Ocean. Uh, we're, we're leasing further and further offshore. We're developing tar sands and oil shale, and we're doing the fracking. Well, uh,
0: well let's take let's get your take on the shale oil revolution. That's a that's a, certainly a big deal in Western North Dakota.
1: Yes, I know. Well, we we read about it back here. Uh, well, I think um, you know it. It is. Um, uh, it's, we need to worry a lot about the impact. I don't know what is actually. You know, you would be a lot better in sort of what's actually happening to water supplies and. And leaking and and all of this but um, there are uh, reported dangers uh, some states uh, like New York have put a moratorium in place and um, but once again though you know my concern for, from my background and, and the issue that I've worked on for so long without much success uh, is the climate change issue and um, you know there was some hope that we were going to be moving rapidly away from our dependence on fossil fuels, and uh, a recent report just came out that said we could dramatically reduce our fossil fuels just with greater energy efficiency, improving the energy productivity of the U.S. economy, which is a very wasteful energy economy. Uh, but, you know, it's um, we don't seem to... The president has spoken recently in his second inaugural, and uh, others have made statements about trying to take the climate issue on seriously. But fact is that the opportunity to stop the warming of the planet at some tolerable level is fast slipping away.
0: Well, let's, let's get into that because uh, the, the climate change issue is of course your core issue. And, uh, 10 years ago, all of our eyes were on the, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf because that's where we looked at our oil supply coming from. Now all our eyes are on the shale oil that's in Western and Southern U S and, uh, the sort of the eyes off the ball there. Uh, what is the potential threat of taking sequestered carbon, like oil or coal, and out of the earth and, and burning it?
1: Well, the first thing to appreciate, I know that there, you know, there's a lot of climate denial in the U.S., but the greenhouse effect really does work. Uh, if there weren't a natural greenhouse effect, the the whole you know Earth would be a snowball, uh, permanently below the freezing point. Uh, of water. Uh, so natural greenhouse effect does warm the Earth. Now, we have increased these greenhouse gases, uh, in the case of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel burning, by a third in the atmosphere. And, you know, just common sense physics uh, tells us that if you start increasing the presence in the atmosphere of these gases that reduce the Earth's ability to radiate heat out into space, which is what they do, uh, then the planet is going to warm up. And lo and behold, it's warming up. And as it warms, uh, you get big changes. Some areas get a lot drier, like the Midwest in the U.S. in the Southwest. Uh, Some areas get wetter.
0: Well, you've Uh, written a a book recently. It it was uh, published in September last year, America the Possible, Manifesto for a New Economy. How does this uh, issue play into your manifesto?
1: Well, in two ways. Uh, I think in the short well, the book is about the need for uh, deep change in in uh, in the nature of our economy. Uh, and to put it in a nutshell, we have an economy that is very good at giving priority uh, to profits, uh, to the making of profits, uh, to uh, production and, and gross domestic product, which your news report from NPR was just talking about. Uh, and uh, And it's very good at uh, supporting the projection of U.S. uh, power. This uh, political economy that we have is good at those things. What it's not good at is sustaining and restoring people and place and planet. Uh, Even the famous textbook of microeconomics by Paul Samuelson and William Nordhaus says, you know, we have a ruthless economy in the U.S. And it is. Uh, And it's not doing well by our people. We have... um, uh, we have uh, the uh, inequality returned now to levels that we haven't seen in 1928 since the late uh, 20s. Um, we have um, the highest level of uh, poverty uh, and the lowest social mobility uh, among us, uh, the 20 advanced uh, democracies. Um, and, you know, and, and we, the list goes on and on. So, indeed, we have have the highest ecological uh, footprint per capita, uh, except for one of those other 20 countries. So we're in bad shape, and the country's going downhill on on a a list of 30 different indicators that I examined in the book. Uh, So what this means is that we've got to really think about deeper change and not just trying to deal incrementally with one problem after another. We've got to, in effect, turn around the machine that's giving rise to these problems and develop a, a, a new system that can really sustain and restore people, place, and planet.
0: Could you give us an example of what uh, uh, one of these possible remedial uh, uh, directions would be? I mean, uh, what what are you proposing, for example?
1: For example, um, well, I think um, we would do uh, well if we took the advice of uh, Environmental economist and uh, and and really worked quite hard to get prices right uh, in our economy by forcing companies to pay the full uh, cost of the damages that they would uh, would be causing.
0: Is this like cap and trade?
1: It would be like cap and trade. It's, it's commonly the, in the climate area it's commonly referred to as a putting a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. And um, so you would certainly want to uh, to do that, but. the, the moment you start thinking about that, and it's a common preachment in uh, environmental uh, economics and in environmental action, you know, uh, let's get the prices right, let's eliminate these perverse subsidies, including those, as President Obama does, uh, on, uh, to, on fossil fuels. But as soon as you go that way, you have to realize that you know, we have half the families in the country living paycheck to paycheck now. Uh, half the families report that they'll be unable to raise $2,000 in 30 days if they needed it for an emergency. Forty percent of the American families have incomes of less than twice the poverty level. A sixth of the people are in poverty. And, you know, and unemployment is, uh, is, is at roughly 8% officially, but probably twice that number of people are either uh, underemployed or part-time employed or dropped out of the labor force altogether. So the problem is how can you raise prices in the co- in a context where there's such a vast economic insecurity? So immediately, if you start trying to think about, well, how do we get the market to work for the environment uh, rather than against it, you, you have to deal with the social justice issue at the same time. And, and people have to be assured that, you know, we're in this together, and uh, the kinds of programs that we need to protect people from falling out of the middle class or being in poverty you know, will be implemented. Unemployment insurance in the United States covers only 14 percent of lost wages uh, in, you know, in the recession times.
0: Well, we're speaking with uh, Gus Speth. He's an author, he is a policy uh, maker and a think tanker guy, and uh, very well versed in terms of uh, issues invi- involving the environment and the economy of our country. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment.
2: It's a night of jazz on Prairie Public. Following the rebroadcast of Hear It Now, we kick it off with Friday Night Swing with Lloyd Anderson. Then at 9 Central, Bob Studebaker hosts as we present both classic jazz from the legends of American music and new jazz from emerging artists. At 11 Central, it's the Jazz Junket with Ryan Schweitzer, followed at midnight by Jim Wilkie's Jazz After Hours. That's all right here, statewide, on Prairie Public.
0: This is here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and on the phone from the middle of Vermont, Gus Speth joins us. We're talking about his book, A Manifesto for a New Economy, America the Possible, and his uh, concern about the country's environmental direction and the potential for uh, a tougher future for all of us. Uh, Do you think most countries might join an effort to limit global warming, or did just a few have to do that, like the United States or and China and India, that kind of thing.
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, we have a process that uh, that the UN orchestrates that is supposed to be moving us towards a solution. Uh, and 192 countries are involved, uh, and it is unwieldy. And these annual meetings that they have are mammoth. Um, we we it, it is probably uh, a dozen uh, or 20 at the most countries that. Uh, that account for the great bulk of the emissions, and 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 they are the ones we need to concentrate on. But the bottom line, Doug, is that you know the U.S. has been the biggest stumbling block uh, in moving this issue forward. Uh, we have done next to nothing except for a few things that we might talk about that President Obama has directed EPA to do. Uh, but um, we've done very little. We have uh, been an obstruction. Uh, in these international negotiations. And China now actually has higher emissions than we do, uh, but they are not going to do anything until the U.S. commits and takes action. And uh, and Europe has challenged us. Uh, Europe was willing to go to 30% reduction in their emissions by 2020 if the U.S. would commit to something significantly less than that, and we would not make that commitment. Europe is going ahead. They have taken uh, steps. And, and God bless them, California is, uh, has a strong program uh, to, to curb its emissions. But nationally, we haven't done much. Well,
0: and, well uh, what's a reasonable timeline here? I mean, we've been talking about this now for decades. and
1: uh, We have been talking about it for decades. Uh, is- and
0: so at what point uh, do we all start getting very warm and wishing we had done something about 10 years ago?
1: Warming now has only gone up a little more than a Fahrenheit degree, okay, mm-hmm. one degree. And look what is already what is already happening. Uh, we know that the sea level rise is up eight or nine inches. Uh, we know the storms are stronger, uh, the hurricanes are stronger. Uh, we have this. Decades ago, people predicted that the Southwest was going to be sort of an epicenter of drought, and lo and behold, we set all these uh, temperature records uh, uh, last summer. And, and, and the Arctic is melting. And this is just with one degree. Now, the projection is that, uh, given if, you, if we actually implemented all the commitments that the world has made, we will see eight degrees, roughly, uh, Fahrenheit, global average warming, in this century. I mean, this is devastating. This is, uh, we're on the cusp of the, an unprecedented disaster. And uh, what it means is that if we wanted to do the right thing, we ought to be reducing, globally... Uh, emissions by about 5% a year from now till the middle of the century, hmm. a 40-year period. And the world is not going to move on, the, on that kind of commitment or anything even close to it unless the U.S. gets busy and, and makes uh, its fair share of that commitment. And we are responsible for about 30% of the gases that have accumulated in the atmosphere.
0: Do you feel like you're tilting at windmills?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I was buried, I fell out of my chair when the president actually put a strong statement, uh, perhaps the strongest statement in his uh, second inaugural, uh, a commitment to do something. And, you know, we'll see what he does, but we've been at the edge of doing something a couple of times uh, in the country, and uh, we haven't. Um, you may remember when, you know, uh, Mr. Gore's book uh, uh, and in his work, uh, one, the... Uh, uh, a, uh, many prizes and, and recognition and in and about 19, in 2007, 8, and 9 it actually looked like something was going to happen both both uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigned hard uh, on the climate issue when they were fighting each other in the primary and we actually got legislation through the House but the whole thing died in 2010 uh, because the, the, you know, basically getting 60 votes when Literally every Republican uh, in the country was uh, uh, in the Senate was against it. Um, proved impossible. Well, do you we think don't legislation, and we're 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 ruining the planet for our children and grandchildren? It's a desperate situation.
0: Do you think a part of this is the fact that uh, we 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 don't like to spend more for gasoline uh, than uh, I mean we we don't like what we're spending now, but we're not spending as much as most people on the, on the planet. The,
1: the, the gasoline thing is uh, well, you know, Europe charges. Three times what we do for for gasoline, and uh, and, and and that's a better reflection of, of what the actual actual true costs are. If you uh, added up uh, damages, and uh, there's nothing worse than than that uh, that uh, pump spinning around fast right in front of everybody's eyes. Is somehow you filled up your tank, and uh, and it was sent to your credit card, and you really didn't have to sit there and stand there and look at the at the money flying by, <laughs> uh, I think we we wouldn't be so mesmerized by the price of gasoline. Price of gasoline hasn't gone up all that much if you think it in real terms from the, when I started driving, uh, you know, uh, in, in uh, at age fourteen, <laughs> South Carolina. A all while back. Time ago.
3: <laughs> okay.
0: Well, uh, I'm just thinking about uh, all of those people that uh, really think more about the cost of the gasoline than perhaps the
1: uh, well, the know, cost people, to the future? The problem is, is, is not the prices. The problem is having the money to pay the prices, uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people don't have that. And so I think the environmentalists have got to face up to the need to deal with the equity issues in our in our country. If I could make one other general point. The, the news broadcast, when, when I got on the line with you, uh, was talking about the gdp in the last quarter and how they've gone up a little bit and and you know even npr as smart as the reporters there are refer to this growth in gdp as a good thing and we all think you know we're taught to think that but the truth is that gdp in our country has gone up more than double since 1980 uh, going up about a hundred and thirty percent and what happened during that time um, You know, poverty mounted to an all-time high. Uh, Inequality went back to the levels of 20s. 42,000 manufacturing plants left our borders. Uh, Life satisfaction flatlined during that whole period. Real wage rates actually flatlined during that whole period of several decades. Uh, The levels of trust in the country measured have gone down. We we are less trustful of each other and government and institutions. Levels of depression went up. I mean, all of this in the, in the wake of all this enormous economic expansion. So we have to really question whether running up GDP, which is merely a tally of everything that happens in the economy, good things and bad things, uh, you know, running that up is, is really a good thing and, and actually, uh, and it's not delivering the jobs. The economy today, as measured by GDP, is higher than it was uh... before the great recession in two thousand eight and you know, the gdp is more than fully recovered and yet we still have uh, you know perhaps fifteen percent of the public either unemployed or underemployed or dropped out of the labor force or working in part-time part-time jobs or taking whatever they can get it and and we're not generating the kind of jobs we need and we're not going to get them by merely thinking that we're going to run you know we can increase uh, GDP. gdp hasn't delivered in the past uh, better lives. And and it's unlikely even to deliver the jobs that we count on it to deliver today. Well, I
0: thank you for spending some time with us. James Gus Speth is an environmental thinker, an activist, and author. His most recent book, America, the Possible, Manifesto for a New Economy. Batten down the hatches, Gus, that storm's coming your way.
1: (laughs) It is coming. Thank you, Doug, for listening to me.
0: The news is next.
3: For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The House has approved two more anti-abortion bills. One of the bills makes it illegal for abortion to be used for sex selection or to end a pregnancy because of genetic abnormalities. Valley City Representative Dwight Kiefert argued for that bill.
4: Aborting of unborn babies, regardless of their perceived shortcomings, is a terrible testimonial against a supposedly civilized nation. The killing of unborn children is still allowed in North Dakota. North Dakota. And make no mistake about it, these are human babies. We think it is absolutely terrible when horses here in North Dakota are neglected and allowed to die, and yet we intentionally kill babies for reasons such as sex selection sex selection, or perceived abnormalities.
3: Opponents argue these kinds of bills are likely unconstitutional and are being pushed by out-of-state interests. Cummings Representative Gail, Maho- uh, Gail Mooney. I contend this argument belongs in the federal court systems but paid for by the groups that are interested in challenging current laws. The people of North Dakota should not be expected to flip this bill. That bill passed the House 64-27. to 27. Another bill, which would prohibit abortions when a fetus's heartbeat is present, also passed 63-28. to 28. FEMA will provide just over $1 million for property buyouts in Ward County. The properties were severely damaged in the 2011 flood and are at risk of future flooding. Senator Heidi Heitkamp says she's encouraged by the announcement, but says it is only part of an ongoing solution. Heitkamp says along with flood recovery efforts, a focus needs to be kept on flood prevention, for the Surras River region.
4: This obviously has to be a local, state, and federal partnership. Always concerned. The the federal government shares uh, responsibility, but we think so does the state. And ask some questions about what the state was willing to do. Ask some questions about whether the plan was realistic given the price tag. And we'll just continue to work through those issues with the uh, extremely competent people of the
0: city
3: of Minot camp says the region needs the certainty provided by a flood mitigation program and it will take all sides working together to create a realistic approach. And the Senate Appropriations Committee has endorsed Governor Dalrymple's pay plan. The plan would be the equivalent of 4% per year for the next two-year period. But Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Ray Holmberg of Grand Forks says it isn't an across-the-board percentage increase. Rather, he says it's based upon a number of factors, including performance.
4: In the past, we would give 4% to an agency and they and everyone in the agency got four percent but the legislature last session said no we want to pay someone who is doing better than uh, the expectations we should give them more so this money would allow someone who is a really strong worker for an agency to get more than someone who is not a strong worker or not meeting their performance goals.
3: The pay plan language will be included in all the budgets the Senate passes. The House has yet to act on the pay plan. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster.
0: This is Here at Now on Prairie Public, and I'm Doug Hamilton, joined by Dave Thompson, our Prairie Public News Director from our studio in Bismarck. Good afternoon, Dave.
4: Good afternoon, Doug.
0: It has been a busy and difficult week for higher education in North Dakota. Uh, Chancellor
4: Hamid Shirvani had a very difficult time this week. Well, you know, the story broke last week about um, potential uh, changes in a building that's being constructed at UND. And uh, they had a chance, Shirvani and his colleagues on the Board of Higher Education, had a chance to come before the Senate Appropriations Committee and explain what was going on. The board and Shirvani said there was a lot of misinformation, it's being blown out of proportion, that uh, there wasn't a suite. For the chancellor, there was going to be an executive suite with a conference room and a public area, and then what they call a chancellor's room. And that seemed to quell some of the anti-chancellor thing that has been going on at the Board of Higher Education. I should say at at the legislature, the board is 100 percent behind the chancellor. It must be said at this point.
0: Well, Tony Grinberg uh, from Fargo has been carrying a bill. He hasn't. I don't think he's pre- presented it yet. He has yet, not. He has not. Uh, which would uh, allow the higher ed board to buy out Shivani's contract. Is there some bad blood between Schirvani and uh, Grinberg?
4: Well, it might be related to some of the early on situations with NDSU. Hmm. Um, it's no secret that when it came down to choosing who was going to be interviewed for the chancellor's position. NDS group President Dean Brashani voted against Ham Shirvani to be interviewed. And the student representative from the uh, NDSU voted against hiring Shirvani. So they're, they're, they started on a kind of a bad foot. And uh, this may be exacerbated by that. Well,
0: President Kelly at the University of North Dakota uh, was sort of involved in this uh, tempest about the office, the, mm. the, the suite in the what was to be an IT building. Uh, right. Uh, what's the relationship between the chancellor and the president of a major
4: institution in the state? I think at this point it's kind of a little bit of a dust-up because the chancellor felt that if uh, President Kelly had some concerns, he should have picked up the phone and called rather than writing this memo saying he didn't think you could make these changes without legislative approval. A couple of things just from my observation— Yes, uh, probably he could have done that, uh, President Kelly. But President Kelly's been around the block, and he knows that the relationship between the Board of Higher Education the higher education in general and the legislature is a bit on the tenuous side because the legislature, since the roundtable, has felt it's given up too much control to the Board of Higher Education, to the campuses, and there are ser- several members of the legislature who want to take that control back. Hmm. So the, it's it's been a longstanding standing Festering type thing, but I think, you know, it's it. We'll see if there's a, this has any lasting uh, effects on anything. It may or may not.
0: All right. So, more to come, maybe. Yep. Let's talk about these abortion bills that have been uh, uh, showing up at the Capitol. So uh, far,
4: five have passed.
0: Five have passed. Uh, I noticed that uh, Connie Triplett from Fargo was kind of interested in getting a. a a fund together to defend against what would almost certainly be a court challenge.
4: Right, and the reason she brought that the up... Grand because of, excuse me. Forks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, She is uh, quite the opponent of these bills. And the opponents that you're seeing are coming out and saying, we know what is up here. They claim that out-of-state interests are pushing North Dakota to pass these bills to set up the Roe v. Wade challenge. And the groups can do that, and this was brought up on the floor of the House today. The groups would do that, and they would have no financial skin in the game. It would be up to the states to defend it, and if the states lost, they'd probably pay the the other side's bill when it got to the Supreme Court, if it would get to the Supreme Court. So there are the bills, the personhood amendment. There are the bills to require that if you're going to practice in an abortion clinic, you must be admitted to a local hospital to practice there. And uh, the heartbeat bill, which was passed today in the House, which says that if you can detect the heartbeat in a fetus, you cannot abort the fetus. So there are all sorts of bills that are out there yet. Hmm.
0: Well, there was some uh, encouraging news, I think, for state employees. The governors uh, got their pocketbooks in mind. I take it
4: right. And as you met, as you heard on the newscast, the Senate has gone along with the four and four. And now the four and four. You, you know, this used to be it'd be 4% one year, 4% the second year, and most state employees would reckon, would probably expect to get a 4% raise. Well, it's a little different this year in that the the agencies will be given the equivalent of 4% for everybody, but will have more of an option to pay people they think deserve it more, pay people who may need to have more money to bring them closer to market. So there's going to be more flexibility within the uh the agency heads. So it won't necessarily be a 4-and-4 four four for everybody.
0: Is everybody happy
4: with that? So far, the North Dakota Public Employees Association says they like the concept. They they were actually pushing for a 5-and-5 five five equivalent. But so far, 4-and-4 four four is going to be okay.
0: Well, it uh, beats what has been. So mm-hmm. uh, The uh, effort by Representative Josh Boshy of Fargo to uh, get some money uh, – Uh, put aside to buy milk for low-income students uh, Mm -hmm. at their milk breaks. Uh, I guess there are about 6,000 kids around the state that would benefit from something like this. And it was about a half million bucks. But it it got a do not
4: pass. It got a do not pass along a party-line voting committee. And when it got to the floor, it was a party-line situation. Now, the Democrats are trying to make some hay out of this, trying to claim that the Republicans don't care about children, the Republicans are saying, look, this is a federal government responsibility. The federal government needs to step up and fund it. So it's a, it's a classic confrontation.
0: In the meantime, though, you've got uh, this image of 6,000 kids sitting there while everybody else has a milk break and they don't.
4: Well, yeah, that's partially true <laughs> yeah. because they still get milk with lunch. Yes. So so the the, the federal lunch program is still in place, but... You know, the, the the Representative Boucher felt that, you know, during breaks when there's some downtime, why not give them some milk or juice?
0: Well, th- there's a t- there's typically in the morning in the elementary schools, I think there's a milk break before mm-hmm. lunch. And, and this is, uh, I guess, was something that he was trying to deal with. So maybe
4: we'll hear more about this. I don't and- think this is over. Yeah, okay. I really don't. I, I think there may be an attempt to bring this back in the Senate, maybe as an appropriation amendment. To the dPI budget or something animal cruelty the Senate passed their the a, a bill mm-hmm Senate passed the bill unanimously and now it was watered down a little bit let's let's be honest with you because um yes, there were the classy felony provisions still in the bill, but that was kind of watered down in terms of frequency of uh, violations, so there not everybody's happy with it, but uh, Senator Tim Flackle from Fargo, who was the main sponsor of the bill, said, let's not um, throw this out because we're, we've got a good start here. You know, we've got a good bill. It's not a perfect bill. Let not the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. And uh, it passed unanimously today. We'll see how the House handle this, and we'll see if there's attempts in the House to amend it so it's a little bit tougher.
0: Now, there was an announcement, long awaited, I think, uh, for this uh, refinery at Spiritwood.
4: Oh, yeah, just made it today about this biofuels refinery. It's good. It's a good announcement, and it's the people you know, at Great River Energy have been working on this for a while. You've got the Spiritwood power plant. There was supposed to be an ethanol plant there, but that kind of fell by the wayside, so now they've done this biofuels. It'll be biodiesel and ethanol and some other things. Now they're going to be able to use some of the waste heat from the power plant and power from the power plant to manufacture this. And a, a really big announcement happened today. It looks like the permits are now in place, and maybe they'll be able to break ground and start building it.
0: Well, what about uh, harnessing some of that gas that's being flared right now, famously, so you can see it from space?
4: Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the other thing, because you've got that, um, that fertilizer plant. That's planned for the same area. So you can use the natural gas to make this anhydrous fertilizer. And there seems to be a huge market for that. So maybe it will reduce a lot of the flaring.
0: Is the state not interested in, in providing some sort of a you know a, an incentive in the sense of you're not exempted from the tax anymore if you just burn it off uh, That to, to kind of get people moving to connect this stuff, pull it out of the ground and actually use it and not just burn it?
4: It's an interesting dichotomy because... The, the idea is that the infrastructure has not caught up with the amount of flaring. Plus, you have natural gas, which is at relatively low price, so does it make it economical to capture the gas and and uh, bring it to processing plants? Well, there seems to be a growing feeling among producers in the Bakken that, yes, this is economic to do. It's It's a natural byproduct of the oil development out there, and the latest predictions say that even after the oil production declines, the natural gas may continue to hang in there at the same production and may actually go up. So there's a lot of natural gas to be, to be corralled there, and if you do it, you're going to be able to you know, make, make money doing it.
0: Uh, the FEMA buyouts for Minot, I heard Heidi Kitekamp talk about this, something like a million dollars. Is that anywhere near what they need?
4: Not quite. Not quite, but of course we're talking phases. Okay. And as they did for Grand Forks, they're talking phases. There's only so much you can do at each at each step of the way, but there's more to be done, and there will be more to be done when Minot finally comes out with a final plan for the uh, flood control, where the dikes are going to be, where any diversion channels might be located. There, there will be some more buyouts and some more finalization of that plan.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I noted uh, there was a, a an effort in the legislature to enable cities and counties to hire lobbyists. Yep. Uh, how is that going over?
4: Not well, because although the uh, sponsor of the bill uh, made a compelling case for it, the League of Cities came in and said, "I don't think we need to do this." Le- the Association of Counties came in saying, "I don't think we need to do this." And some members of the public don't like the idea either, so it could be have a rough, kind of a rocky road to get through committee. Aren't
0: uh, aren't lobby? Aren't there kind of informal lobbyists
4: now? Pretty much what you have <laughs> is you have uh, people who are hired hired as city attorneys, county attorneys, assistants, state's attorneys, special attorneys, who actually do the double duty. They come to Bismarck and they lobby. They register those lobbyists. So it isn't a direct payment because that's not 100% of their salary it goes for lobbying, but part of their salary goes for lobbying, but they're used in other purposes as well.
0: Well, it's interesting whenever lobbyists get involved, especially in a state like North Dakota, because somebody wants something that's going to tax somebody else. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, you can't give everybody uh, the kind of help they want. So right. it's whoever jumps highest and hollers loudest sometimes.
4: Sometimes that's true.
0: Uh, there was an anti-discrimination bill proposed.
4: Right and it it's going through the state senate right now and it and it passed the state senate a few years ago and the house did not take it up or should say took it up and and killed the bill now the bill would prohibit discrimination on the basis of uh, rental property selling property or offering jobs to people who are are lesbian gay bisexual transsexual uh, transgender bisexual and there was a very emotional 3 hour hearing that was held this week before Senate Judiciary, a lot of people from the LGBT community have said, look, we're, we're, we've we're we got anecdotal evidence that we are being discriminated against. And you had uh, groups like the Chamber of Commerce saying, we like this bill because, hey, we've got a shortage of workers in North Dakota. Let's get some people here to fill these jobs. And then you had some of the uh, more, more of the religious people came out and Made some questions about creating a special class, having the LGBT community as a special class.
0: All right. Well, more on that coming up. I'm sure too. Yes, still
4: more to come. All right.
0: Dave Thompson is uh, Prairie Public's news director. He joins us from our studio in Bismarck. Always fun to talk with you, Dave,
1: and happy Friday. Thank you. You too. Okay. Madeline is next.
2: You to attend the next live performance of Dakota Air, the radio show, 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon, February 16th, the Empire Arts Center in Grand Forks. Special guests are internationally acclaimed violinist and conductor of the UND Chamber Orchestra, Alejandro Drago, and the Chamber Orchestra will be there, too. And we'll be celebrating the newfound fame and celebrity of Grand Forks Herald columnist Marilyn Haggerty. Tickets at the Empire or any Grand Forks Gate City Bank. Dakota Air, Saturday afternoon, February 16th in Grand Forks.
0: This is here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and it is time to get a movie review from Matt O'Lean, our resident critic here at Prairie Public. And this time, he, he liked one movie so well,
5: he, like, knocked up so well he went to the sequel, huh? This one isn't as good. Uh, actually, I saw this about a month ago, Doug, and I was kind of holding it for one of those slow weeks where there's nothing to see, and there was nothing to see this last week. We're waiting for the Oscars. Uh, Side Effects opens today. I'm going to see that one with Jude Law and uh, Rooney Mara. That's the new Steven Soderbergh film who keeps saying he's going to retire but still cranks out about two films a year. But This Is 40 is Judd Apatow's mm-hmm. most recent film, and he is making the same film over and over and over. He's He's gone into Woody Allen land, I guess. Uh, this one is sort of the unofficial sequel to Knocked Up. Uh, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann are back. As a couple, both turning 40, they're having trouble. They're both very annoying people. And uh, they were kind of the supporting players and Knocked Up, as you recall, Doug, with Seth Rogen and Katherine Heigl taking the lead. And I think that's problem number one. You kind of miss Seth Rogen and Katherine Heigl here. I like Paul Rudd fine, but I think he's better as a supporting man. I don't think he's a leading man. When they've put him in leading parts, uh, the film he did with Reese Witherspoon a couple years ago did not work. Uh, Leslie Mann, same thing. Judd Apatow's real-life wife, she was funny and knocked up. This time, she's in it too much, and she's just downright annoying. There's an annoying factor for me, for her as an actress, that really gets old. I didn't care for this film much at all. I think this time, what we've got is Apatow trying too hard. The scenes go on too long. The film is over two hours long. And again, why do these romantic comedies have to be that long? They used to be able to crank them out in 95 to 100 minutes in the 30s and 40s, and it would turn out just fine. So uh, I think the real problem with this film is the two lead characters are too annoying, and you really don't really care about them, and there are far too few laughs. Another mistake Apatow makes is casting his two real-life daughters I noticed that. as the children. The older daughter is passable. The younger daughter is horrible. And I hate saying that about an 8-year-old. It's not her fault. She's not an actress. He could have had a casting call in Los Angeles and got a very good, talented 8- or 9-year-old girl. She reads her lines as if she's reading off a teleprompter. She's just not very good. And again, in this day and age, Doug, there's no legitimate reason to not have good casting all the way through the parts. There's so many SAG actors out there. You know, in the old days— Maybe the second or third leads were not very good in 1930s films, but there's no excuse now to have poorly cast supporting parts. Some of the funnier parts take place at a Rudd's record studio that he's running. Uh, those are okay, okay, funny parts. Melissa McCarthy shows up in a cameo, and she's always funny. Anytime Melissa McCarthy's on screen, she dominates. Yeah. There's a parental issue at school with a couple of the kids, but overall, this was just too long, and uh, the reviews were very, very mixed on this one. So, you know, maybe Apatow needs to reinvent himself a little bit. Uh, instead of using the same old formula, but I just think really the problem here is in the two leads. They're just not leading actors for for my liking, especially not Leslie Mann.
0: The strange thing to me is, and you mentioned this, you've talked about it, but this is sort of a self
5: indulgent family affair. I mean, how did they get, how do they get this thing bankrupt? Because Judd Apatow is can do what he wants now. His films make money. Uh-huh. There's a there's a there's a formula that works, um, but I think the formula is pushing it now and. Uh, You know, again, Leslie Mann is okay. She's very funny and knocked up as Catherine Heigl's friend. But she's not, to me, a leading actress. She's got this annoying voice that just keeps going like this and this. And after a while, you just want her to to be quiet. So I didn't care for this one at all. (laughs) All right. Okay, well. It's time to play a little movie trivia with you.
0: If we can't stump our critic who is a walking encyclopedia, and I I, I fear that this one might be too easy, but I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, What is the highest grossing, the all time grossing silent film? It was The Big Parade. Is that right? That's not right. The all time grossing silent film. The
5: artist. The artist is correct. That's okay. kind of and, weird well, how because there. Because The Big Parade was the highest grossing film of the 1920s. But, ah. yeah, I suppose with, with current tickets, the artist would have it. So, yes, I got it. Well, the second actually, time.
0: it actually beat Birth of a Nation, which had ah. had
5: $10 million okay. in All gross. Right.
0: But The Artist passed it okay. around the holidays with over $12 million. Once
5: I said Big Parade and you hesitated,
0: then I knew it was The Artist. Okay. <laughs>
5: okay. So there you go. We
0: sort of stumped you. But you can stump Madeline, too. Just let us know what kind of question you'd like to ask. Ask him at, at praypublic.org, And we want you to help us play this game with Matt as well. And if you submit a question that we ask Matt, even if he guesses it, you, but you submit a stumper that we use on Hear It Now, we will send you the CD from the big boffo movie Les Mis. And uh, you'll enjoy some music as you remember your role in stumping Madeline on Hear It Now. The Go to Date book is next. When you hear
2: arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for February 8th. The era of prohibition may have ended on December 5th, 1933, with the repeal of the Volstead Act by the ratification of the 21st Amendment. However, the desire for bootlegged alcohol was still strong in North Dakota. On this date in 1934, the citizens from 22 towns in the center of the state were wondering which ones of their neighbors were regular customers. Responding to a tip of a possible violation of the city's beer-selling ordinance, Carrington Police Chief R.J. Brady, accompanied by Commissioner W.H. Roach, approached a 1933 Ford Coupe, occupied by a man named Arlie Carter, along with another individual. When questioned, the unknown man reached for a gun hidden in the back seat, but the officer was able to overpower him and pull him from the car. The stranger managed to escape, however, and besides his partner, he left behind his car, 52 gallons of straight alcohol, 2 gallons of whiskey, an automatic pistol, and his little green book giving the names of liquor customers and dealers in 22 area towns. This included a line of towns from Carrington, west along Highway 200 as far as Washburn, and a few north and south from Devil's Lake to Woodworth, naming people in towns such as Turtle Lake, Heaton, Goodrich, Sykeston, and most other small towns in the area. Along with the customer's names, the Little Green Book also offered the credit rating of each and contained penciled notations such as drinks but not much, or buys once in a while, or an okay. Many had a terse NG, meaning no good after their name, and for some it merely stated, keep away. Of interest to the authorities is that the liquor salesman's best girl's name and address were written in the back of the book, in her own handwriting. The ledger also listed the going price for the bootlegged alcohol at $4 a gallon and whiskey at $3 a quart. Prohibition was over and retail prices in the area for legal alcohol were $12 per gallon for alcohol and $7 per quart for whiskey. The bootleggers sold the first gallon for $4, but additional gallons were more expensive with 2 gallons at $8.25, 3 gallons at twelve seventy-five, and 4 gallons at $17.00. Straight alcohol was obtained as a byproduct of bottled malt beer from which the alcohol was extracted, but with regular beer back on the market, it soon lost its popularity. While police continued to hunt for the stranger on a John Doe warrant, Arlie Carter was charged with resisting an officer, fined $25 or 20 days, and was released after paying his fine. The little green book would continue to leave a lot of red faces in central North Dakota for weeks to come. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Jim Davis. I'm Merrill Pepcorn.
3: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council.
0: Monday on Hear It Now, Ashley Thornburg will be in the seat, and she'll be hosting the show much of next week. Two one one is the statewide helpline, and two one one Awareness Day is Monday. Joining us from First Link will be Stacey Logering, Director of Information and Crisis Services, and uh, Cheryl Mubbie, Suicide Support Program Coordinator. First Link is one of many programs being supported by Thursday's Giving Hearts Day. That's Thursday next week. And uh, Pat Trainer, Executive Director of the Impact Foundation, will also Uh, talk about that. Also, assistant professor of physics, Warren Christensen, he works at NDSU, joins us to discuss how math trumps luck when it comes to the game of poker. He'll be presenting on this topic at a Science Cafe event. All coming up on Hear It Now. Have a great weekend.